Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. That's the one spot in my career that I feel like I failed. I know I failed there. And everywhere else, I feel like we've had, you know, incredible success. But the Sacramento experience was was one that wish I would have had more time. I wish things would have been done different. I wish I would have done things different. Grateful to have you on board for today's podcast. My guest coming up in just a moment, followed by the Crowd Ultra Q&A, and then my rant. You know, when I started doing this podcast back in October, I had a lot to learn, and I have learned a lot about, you know, metrics and things of that nature. And so I just want to take a moment and thank you for following me and listening to my podcast. I thank you for your comments, particularly if you listen via Apple Podcast. It means a lot. The ratings mean a lot. Uh, over on YouTube, I appreciate the subscriptions and the thumbs up and the comments. So before I get going with today's show, uh, I really do. I just want to say thank you. Uh, it means the world to me. I really appreciate your support. Hey, today's show is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Whether it's leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing, New Works Plumbing, hey, they're a full service plumbing solution. And no matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. And they're expert technicians. They're available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X Plumbing. Com. My guest today has had an amazing career in the game of basketball. He grew up in a basketball family. He has been an NBA assistant coach, an NBA head coach, and he has turned into one of the best collegiate coaches in the country. He has just signed a new deal to remain at Arkansas, where he led the Razorbacks to their first Elite Eight appearance in 20 five years. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show, Eric Musselman. Mus, how are you? I'm doing great, Grant. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thank you, and congratulations on your new deal. What a whirlwind it has been for you in a short period of time down there in Arkansas. It seems to be a perfect fit for you, Mus. Well, Grant, it's it's so interesting having, you know, my career has kind of gone all over the place, and, you know, the, the Arkansas fit's been great. You know, the Nevada fit was great as well. I mean, we we really enjoyed our time at Nevada and, and the time here at Arkansas has been awesome. My family's really comfortable. And, you know, the, the, the Razorback brand has 
has so much power, you know, throughout our, our entire athletic department, but, but it's also a national brand, which, you know, becomes really, really important, obviously in recruiting. And, and, and then it's, it's a school that's proven in the past that they can win at a very, very high level um, in the sport of basketball. Moss, I want to back up. You grew up, your dad, uh, a well-known coach, first ever coach of the Timberwolves. Uh, I think I've shared with you this on many occasions. Uh, the two years leading up to the first ever game with the Timberwolves, I used to see your dad everywhere. I used to think there was more than one Bill Musselman because he was at a game almost every night scouting. His work <laughs> ethic was unbelievable. What was that like for you growing up in that environment? Well, I, 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 the first thing, Grant, is that I didn't know any better. You know, I mean, my, my dad was, uh, he was my best friend. He was my idol. Um, you know, I, I, I would go to practices with him. I would go on road trips with him. Um, and, and he did have just an insane work ethic. But, but even maybe more than that, Grant, was his incredible competitiveness. Um, and I do remember those years leading up to the Timberwolves and he, 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 he was so into trying to build a roster and trying to make the, the, the pieces fit. And he really believed in work ethic. He really believed in team chemistry. And, and there's so many lessons that, you know, that I can hear to this day him saying, like, you know, like in the NBA, he felt that it was so important for a player to have one identifiable skill that he could do at a really, really high level. And it's, it's interesting because, because I kind of you, you look at that thing from a global perspective, and it's it's really that same thing. When I start thinking about assistant coaches, like does an assistant coach have one identifiable skill that that just makes him much better? Whether it's as a recruiter, whether it's from an X and O standpoint, but but so many really really great lessons you know that my dad taught me, and and and, and the really cool thing now that he's you know no longer living is is I got to spend you know, a year as, as an assistant coach with him, with that Timberwolves team. And, and that's always really, really special to me. And now I have my son on staff here. So really, really, really cool. And the fact that my dad and I were the first father-son head coaches in the history of the NBA, that could never be taken away. There's obviously been a few others that have that have followed in that same path. But my dad and I were the first ever. And, and, and like I said, that will always stand. We lost him way too soon, Mus, and I just wonder what that would have been like for you to be able to share what you've accomplished in the collegiate ranks, both at Nevada and now. How darn special that would be if he could see you now. Well, Grant, it's so it's so interesting to, to hear you ask that question. Uh, I'll even go back a little bit further. When when I was right before I was I was named the head coach of the Golden State Warriors, we were in the lobby and. And, and the media was in a different room. And I asked, actually asked Gary St. Jean, our general manager at the time, if I could go back into, into the office that they had showed me that was going to be my office. And I sat at my desk for a few minutes and just cried thinking, you know, wow, what, you know, my dad, I mean, he just, you know, raised me and played all these pickup games and I followed him everywhere. And what would he actually think about me being an NBA head coach? And then I had to regroup and regather myself and, and try to wipe away the tears and then go out and do a press conference. But uh, every time there is a press conference or any time there's a big game, you know, we were in the Elite Eight this year, I always think back, you know, to, to how my dad would be looking down and what he would be thinking. But, but the really, I don't know what word to use, Grant, but we'll be in the middle of a game 
and the other team will be on like an 8-0 run. And, and I, I historically in college have not liked to uh, call timeouts. And I'll be thinking, I'll say, gosh, my dad would have called a timeout, you know, two possessions ago. Or, you know, we give our guys a lot of freedom offensively. And my dad's teams were much more disciplined offensively. And we'll take a crazy shot. And, and, and I'll in the middle of the game, I'll sit there and go, oh, man. I don't think my dad would have liked that shot. So he's constantly in my thoughts. Must I think a lot of people forget when you were at Golden State as the head coach, you were the runner-up to coach of the year to Greg Popovich. I think you received something like 26 or 27 first-place votes. So obviously you grew up, you spent many years as an assistant and as a head coach in the NBA. And then you find yourselves, you know, you find yourself in college, an assistant, work your way up to head coach. We talk about Nevada. We talk about at Arkansas. The differences are immense. But how much do you love the, the collegiate atmosphere, working with young men, developing them, not only on the basketball floor, but turning them really into adults for those that don't go on and play at the next level to, to, to be great citizens? Well, I mean, it, it's, it, it, you know, I think at my age and because of the experience that I had, I mean, I loved coaching the NBA. It's the, you know, as you know, better than anyone, Grant, from all the games that you've done. I mean, it's the, it's the greatest athletes in the world and, and the lifestyles, you know, incredible. And, and you meet a lot of great people, both players, coaches, front office. But having said that, I knew that, 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 you know, I had gotten two great opportunities as a head coach, both with the Kings and the Warriors. And, and I wanted to be a head coach. And my wife and I sat down, we, we, we talked about the pluses and minuses of, of the collegiate game and the NBA game. And, but, but once I jumped into it, to get back to directly to your question, Grant, I love being on a college campus. I can't wait. Uh, Sunday, we're going to, to support our baseball team. And, and, and it, during football season, I can't wait to watch Coach Pittman's team and sit in the student section. And I love, I don't know why, um, I don't know if it's, you know, I feel younger being, being a part of a college campus, but the camaraderie um, across department-wide is really, really cool. I mean, my time at Nevada, their baseball coach, TJ Bruce, is one of my best friends to this day. So just a lot different family-type atmosphere collegiately, especially if, if that's what you want. You know, and, and, and like we have so many great coaches here at Arkansas. I mean, our, our men's and women's track teams, I mean, the, the, the coaching staffs are insanely good, and, and I love to pick their brains and try to learn from them. And our women's soccer coach here, is an incredible coach and I love to pick his brain. So from a leadership standpoint, there's a lot of resources that you could go to when you're on a college campus. When I talk about success in college, I think the easy answer would be recruiting, but it's so much more than that. What you did at Nevada was amazing. What you've already accomplished at Arkansas in a very short period of time, turning around that program is amazing. What's the key must, what do you attribute the success to? Well, I think there's, as you know, Grant, there's just so many different things that would go into, you know, being successful. But, you know, I think one of the things is, is you've got you've to create an atmosphere. You've got to create an identity, um, you know, with your team. And, and, and the one thing that both at, at Nevada and, and, and at Arkansas in year one, you know, we, we had to create an identity of really playing hard. And then, and then you could start you know, sprinkling in through the recruiting, because obviously at the collegiate level, you're, you know, you're, you're like the GM of the team and, and, and your assistant coaches are the player personnel guys and scouts and, 
And so what we've tried to do is we've tried to take the format that an NBA team would build on and, and use that in the college model. I mean, we do that really kind of with everything that, that, that we do with our roster. In other words, when we're, when we're recruiting high school players, we don't talk about them being four stars or five stars or three stars. We talk about, you know, is this guy a rotation player? Is, is he a sub? Is he a starter? And then we, we, we take it a step further and say, is he the equivalent of a lottery pick? Is he equivalent to a mid-first round pick? Is he equivalent to a second round pick? And that's how we talk about our high school players when we're evaluating them in our recruiting room or our draft board, so to speak. And so we try to model the, the transfer portal just as if you would NBA free agency. And so we've kind of mixed the high school along with the transfer portal. And we've had a really good blend. We had four great freshmen this year. And then we blended them in with three grad transfers. And that formula has really, really worked out well for us. Mus, is there a fine line going after that high school player that has one and done written all over him as opposed to recruiting that player that you feel can be in your program for three or four years? Well, I think I think right now, Grant, we're in we're in new territory starting right now because with the one-time transfer rule, players staying there's there's going to the, the the percentages of players that stay for four years at one institution is going to drop dramatically from what it has been, and, and it's it's going to be this cycle of student athletes really where where we're going to see that I you know for us we try to recruit as good a player and as good a character that will fit with us. You know, we, I mean, if you're not a gym rat, this is not a good place for you. You know, one of our freshmen, Moses Moody started for us, led us in scoring on an elite eight team. He is elected to put his name in the draft. He is going to hire an agent. Uh, he will be a one and done player. We're very hopeful. He'll be a lottery pick. He won us. He, I mean, he led us to an elite eight. Mm-hmm. And so it was a great year, a great experience for us. And then we've also had players like Lindsey Drew at Nevada, uh, whose father, Larry Drew, coached in the NBA and played in the NBA. You know, Lindsey was actually a five-year player, um, you know, for Nevada. And that worked out great for both Lindsey and the two different guys that got to coach Lindsey. So I think it's, it's ca- kind of case by case. I do think that if you have a one-and-done player uh, like Moody, you want that player to really buy into the team, and, 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 and that's what we had. I could see if a player had an agenda of being a one-and-done and, and wasn't a team guy that it might not work out. But for us, it's, it's really worked out. Even Cameron Oliver, who was a Sacramento player that we recruited at Nevada, he was a player that played only two years and then you know went the pro route. And, and, and so all these different stories really utilize on, on guys because you never know when grant they're gonna go pro whether it's a a guy that's a one and done or a guy that plays two years or or three years and you just want to try to support guys we had two players last year in isaiah joe and mason jones both those guys left early they still had college eligibility and they're both playing for the sixers so they, they 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 reached their goal they reached their dream and now you just hope that they make it a career of themselves because that's really the Mm -hmm. ultimate thing that's hard to get college student athletes to understand is you want to make it a career 
you don't just want to put on a uniform. Your program in Alabama getting so much attention and the parallel between you and Nate Oates is fascinating. He came from Buffalo. You came from Nevada. You both have taken programs and turned them around. You look at what he does at a predominantly, let's face it, everybody thinks Alabama. They think football. This is so great for the conference, but boy, the competitiveness in your conference is off the charts. Grant, every single night. I mean, when, you, when you're coaching <laughs> right. every single night, you know, you're you're going against, you know, great coaches. I mean, Coach Calipari and yeah. you mentioned Nate Oates and every single night, Bruce Pearl, Buzz Williams, Frank Martin. I mean, you can go Rick Barnes. I mean, every single night you're going against a great coach. You know, fortunately, you know, my background is – you know, I got an opportunity at a really young age to coach against Pat Riley and Phil Jackson. So, you know, there's no intimidation sure. on the other sideline, but there's certainly incredible, incredible respect because our league, literally, the coaches are legends in the college game. You've been at the top of the mountain. I would consider being an NBA head coach at the top of the mountain in your profession. I mean, there are only 30 teams, and uh, it's a job that so many covet, and then you get knocked off the mountain. And what was that period of time like between Sacramento and then moving your way up through the college ranks again? What, what kept you going? What, what was that period of time like in your life? <laughs> if I could use one word, Grant, it would be humbling. You know, when you're – if you look at my career trajectory, it just happened so fast. You know, I mean, coaching in the minor leagues as a head coach at a young age and then working for Chuck Daly and Doc Rivers and, and then getting a, an opportunity to coach the Warriors. And then there's management change. And so I never felt embarrassed getting fired at, Gold, at Golden State. I felt like we did a great job. I, I felt like there's no doubt I'm going to get another head coaching job at the NBA in a very, very short time frame. And and so I just went and, and, and worked with Coach Fratello in Memphis, and then the Sacramento head coaching job came up, and then bam, that's the one spot in my career that I feel like I failed. I know I failed there, and, it, and everywhere else I feel like we've had you know incredible success, but the Sacramento experience was, was one that wish I would have had more time. I wish things would have been done different. I wish I would have done things different. But having said that, uh, after that, it was a kind of life-altering. I, I, I did get a chance to go back and, and help raise my two sons and reconnect with them as a single father. I met my, my current wife, Danielle. So being able to, 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 to be around my sons more, to meet Danielle, and then, and then as a family, all of us getting together and say, hey, we're going to get out of the pro game and we're going to go the college route. It's going to be a family decision and let's embrace it. And oh, by the way, I'm going to go be a college assistant coach, not 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 a head coach, because because I got to try to learn this college landscape. I have to understand how to schedule. I have to understand how to recruit. And it was three years, two at Arizona State, one at LSU, where very very humbling, you know, because I felt like I was ready from an X and O standpoint. Felt like I knew how to build a roster, but I, I learned. I was patient. I got to see two different head coaches and two two different programs and two different conferences. I mean, it really helped me, Grant, to uh, – I'm glad I didn't get an opportunity before that, and, and I had patience and got to really understand what this college game was all about. I remember in Sacramento, your boys were always around. You always tried to uh, include them as much as possible. Any of us in this business understand – 
the constraints with time and how difficult it is on families. With that being said, you talk about your wife, you talk about your daughter that you have with your wife being now at Nevada and Arkansas. Is it more conducive for a a family life compared to the NBA or are the time constraints similar in both jobs? Boy, Grant, that's uh, man. This is an incredible question because I, I haven't really been asked that. Surprisingly, I think it's just different. You know, I, I think that the difference is in the NBA. Um, you don't have phone calls at night. For instance, last night I got home from the office at six o'clock. We're in the off season, and I made phone calls until nine thirty at night because you really can't call a high school prospective student athlete, you know, you don't want to call him past, you know, nine o'clock at night. And then by that time, my daughter, Mariah, who's 11, is already asleep. And Danielle's, you know, got maybe half a show left to watch with me. And then she's going to fall asleep at, at 10 o'clock. So it, that particular, just taking that one day, if that was an off day in the off season in the NBA, you'd probably be with your family the entire day. Um, but the NBA turned into a 12 month thing. When you talked about draft preparation, you talked about the Las Vegas summer league and the preparation for summer league. And, you know, in the NBA, I, I felt like you kind of got a good month off where you could get away for a, for a full month, you know, four weeks, you kind of left alone and, and recharge your battery. And in college, you kind of get two weeks off and then it's sprinkled with, you know, kind of where you're, you, you know, you're, you're doing some vacation, but you're still, the phone is always connected to you because of the recruiting aspect and the recruiting never, never, ever, ever stops Grant. So yes, the NBA's 82 games, college is 30, but this recruiting aspect is, is, you know, takes up so much of your time. And of course I'm, I'm talking to a guy that even during the pandemic in an empty gym is still in there coaching the team, even though there's nobody on the floor, those, <laughs> <laughs> hey, those videos that I saw coming out of that gym, you still, was, I'm telling you, Matt Musk, that was an absolute classic. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, it, I mean, so I, I have so many friends that are still in the NBA and like, some of them will, you know, call. I, I do all these crazy videos and I have fun on the campus. And, and they're like, you do no, like you could you could never do anything even <laughs> similar to that in the NBA. And so but that's some of the fun. Like I let my guard down. We're we've we've really gotten into as a as a program and, and individually really getting into the social media aspect. It's something I never thought as a you know, because I think of, there's a lot of coaches, even when I was younger, you know, people would say overly serious, really competitive, doesn't have enough fun, you know, old school. I heard that a lot. He's an old school coach. And, and now, you know, I think people have a whole different perspective. Some of the younger coaches in our profession think, oh, yeah, that's the guy that's just messing around on social media. He can't coach. He's all about marketing. So it's so funny to, you know, to, to, to kind of sit back and, and hear these different perspectives. Uh, but we do have a lot of fun on social media. I promise you that, Grant. Must the game has changed so much from when you began coaching. I just go back to the semifinal game between Gonzaga and UCLA because it had every element of basketball that I love and, quite frankly, that I don't think we see enough of. Your coaching philosophy and adapting to the way the game is played now – 
is is that just an ongoing process from year to year to year? I mean, you have your philosophy, you have your style, but the game changes. How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think you always want to try to get ahead of the game. You know, like even recruiting, like how do you stay one step ahead? Like, and and we were a little bit a step ahead in the in in the portal. Um, you know, in in transfers, that was how we wanted to stay ahead of the game, roster building wise. On the floor, um, I think you've always got to look at your internal personnel, figure out what you can do best with that particular personnel. But you you, you know, every coach should have a style an identity, a thought process of what they want their team to look like. You know, we talk about consistency all the time. Like if a team watches us in a non-conference game and we're playing North Texas and then they turn the TV on when we're playing, you know, at Auburn, do we, do we play with the same consistency? Do you see the same style of play both offensively and defensively? But the game has changed. It's changed because of analytics. It's changed because of the skill level of players. And so, like, for us, last offseason, we, we kind of said, all right, here's the makeup of our roster. What NBA team do we look like? And we came up that, that, that Milwaukee was the team that, that maybe we resembled most out of all 30 NBA teams. We studied the Bucks' offense, some of the things that they did from an offensive rebounding uh, standpoint. Like, they'll rebound offensively from their corners. So their corners will actually run to the elbow area to offensive rebound. I had never seen that before. I had never heard that before. But through studying, we thought that was a great concept. We added it here. Um, and then at Nevada, we really studied the, the Warriors. Our whole staff would go watch Golden State, Steve Kerr, because they kind of had that positionless basketball. And when they went to that, you know, death lineup that's, you know, got Draymond Green at center, we felt like we were going to play small ball and and, and have a lot of guys in that 6'6 six, six range. And, and so we kind of tried to emulate their style of play. And then with all that, we try to blend in the core principles that, that we've always had uh, as a staff. So I think all those things is, is kind of how we look at the, the new wave game or the changing of the game. And then we try to sprinkle in the analytics as well. You said sprinkle in the analytics, which I think is fascinating because my experience in, in the NBA is – I think there are some teams that go overboard with analytics. Yes, I think it's a useful tool, but you just used the word sprinkle in analytics. How much do you rely on analytics on the college level? Well, we we actually have a service that we pay for that does an incredible job. It's really detailed. It's about 50 pages. And then we also have a separate analytics guy uh, out of Chicago that gives us a separate report. So I, I actually, for every game, get two reports from two different sources. And then Clay Mosier, who's in the NBA yeah. for 15, 16 years, Clay is on staff and he, and he ran the analytics department for the LA Lakers. So we have, we have a lot of resources, but the game is still the game. Like when I hear people talk about analytics, so I worked with Hubie Brown on an overseas all-star tournament. I mean, he had a formula analytically 30 years ago. Like, he wanted his small forwards to be great rebounders. He felt you would always have a great rebounding team if your small forward really rebounded the basketball. And he would talk about how Bernard King was such a great rebounder um, at that slot for him when he coached the Knicks. and. Tom Thibodeau and I laugh about it all the time. Like when we were with my father with the Timberwolves, like my dad had a formula for rebounds per minute that he used, and he actually divided the rebounds and the minutes 
opposite of the way everybody else did. And he had a formula that he used in the minor leagues with his great CBA teams in Albany. And, and he took so many of those Albany Patroon guys with him to the Timberwolves. I think there were six players that he moved up. And, and it, so he was into analytics a long time ago. But I look at a team, Grant, like the Timberwolves, and they want to shoot threes. Well, if you go three for 30 from three, it doesn't really make sense. If you got dribble drive guys and you got a post up player like, you know, Carl Anthony Towns. So I do think you can take it overboard. And, and I, I, the one thing that, and it's, you know, this one thing that's great about not coaching in the pros, you don't have a GM trying to force feed a system to you because it's about the play. Like what do the players do really well? And how do you make that work? You know, because you, you, you can't become a three-point shooting team if you don't have great three-point shooters. Ask Clay Mosier uh, about how to eradicate mosquitoes up in Minnesota. Um, the answer was bats. So when you just when you're next time you see Clay, you ask him about that story. It's it, it, had, it had me cracking up. Um, when it, for for a a aspiring young coach, graduate assistant whatever, but young, wants to get into the the coaching profession. What advice would you give that individual? Well, the greatest thing that ever happened to me, Grant, was working for Chuck Daly. Mm. So I would say if a graduate assistant can, if you can work for a coach that you can really, truly learn from and a coach that, that can help your career, like, I mean, Coach Daly helped me so much because Everybody respected him in the business, and and one phone call from Coach Daly meant more than a hundred calls from everybody else. And um, so I look back at my career as a, whatever fifty-seven year old guy and think about like, you know, how did I get such a great opportunity? Well, obviously, you know, every young coach has to have a work ethic. You've got to you've got to network the right way. You you have to do the job you're at great. And you can't look to always jump and, and you can't look to, you know, if you fulfill your players and you service them and people see that and you're making players better, your career is going to, you know, going to go in the right direction. Uh, but it really is also about who you work for. And I mean, I got a chance, Doc Rivers, Chuck Daly, Mike Fratello, mm. Hubie Brown, Bill Moss. I mean, I've worked for, incredible Lon Kruger, incredible uh, coaches. And when that happens, Grant, good things happen to you because I was able to sit back and learn like Mike Fratello. He had a thing called staggered jumps where how you guarded an inbounder on side out of bounds or baseline out of bounds. We still utilize that doc rivers, pregame motivational messages. They were incredible you know, how he could also talk to the media and kind of get a message through the media to his team. So there's so many things that I've learned from from really great coaches. And that would be the one thing that I would suggest is go get with the very best program or, or if it's in the NBA, the very best organization and just sit back and learn and work your butt off. Mm. Those are, that's, that's how you can have a great career. You know, Mustin, in, in 32 years of being involved in the NBA, I never heard a bad word about Chuck Daly. And then you just raved about him. What made Chuck so special? Well, coach Daly, he really did not have an ego at all. You know, he, he was, uh, players loved him. They loved him. He, he was very, very careful with his words. 
he, I never heard him talk bad about a player, and I never heard him talk bad about another coach. Like, I, I knew that, you know, he, he and Phil Jackson had a bitter rivalry and they were not friends. But, like, if, if, if Coach Jackson's name came up, Coach Daly would just kind of, like, move his eyes a little bit. You know what I mean? Yep, yep. But he never, he never said anything, Grant. And, and I look back and, and um, like, we had Matt Harpering and Michael Doliak on our team as rookies. And they, they would say, like, hey, uh, you know, Coach Daly doesn't say much to us, you know. And, and I would say, well, he's, he's not saying much to Penny either. Like, he's a man of few words. He's a man of few words. Um, but but I would say that, and then the other word I would use, Grant, is credibility. He he had insane credibility with the players. And the interesting thing about Coach Daly is his first crack at a head coach did not happen until he was in his 50s, just like Tom Thibodeau. Um, and, and his first crack at coaching was actually with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and my dad was in management with the Cavs. And, and Coach Daly had a, a not a good record uh, with the Cavs, um, but he got an opportunity, and then things took off. And you you look at his career, uh, but his his treatment of superstars, nobody, I don't care who, I don't think there could ever be a coach that could have better treatment and player relations with his star players because he felt like it was a partnership. He really, really, really partnered up with his players to get them to buy in and do what he wanted, but where the players thought it was their thought process of how they got to the conclusion of whatever was going to happen. Mus, I really uh, enjoyed this. Uh, one of my favorite days with you, we had an off day in Denver in April, and the Rockies were playing, and we had never been to a Coors Field before, and you and I got tickets, and we sat in the upper deck behind home plate and just talked about life, and uh, I'll never forget that day and that conversation we had. Uh, you, you know, I, I am so happy for everything that you've accomplished and your success, and uh, wish you nothing but the best. And again, I can't thank you enough for coming on and doing this. No, Grant, thanks so much for having me. And what we need to do is we need to go down to Petco and, and, and watch the Padres play instead of a colder uh, game in Colorado. <laughs> we, we can put on shorts and a T-shirt and, uh, and talk talk about life and watch a really good, talented Padres team. <laughs> hey, uh, that, that, that's the deal. Anytime I can go to San Diego, that's the deal. Absolutely. Thanks again, Mus. Thanks for having me on, Grant. And again, thanks to Eric Musselman and the Arkansas Razorbacks for making that happen. Really appreciate it. I've known Mus for a long time. Just a, a great guy and somebody I love rooting for. Hey, before we get to Crowd Ultras Q&A, I want to tell you about AdLoad Technologies, a brand new innovative way to advertise your company. That's right. You talk about utilizing LED digital displays. Yeah, they're embedded in the back of a semi-trailer. Your message will always flow with traffic and capture attention of consumers in high traffic areas. Oh, yeah, it is innovative. There is no doubt about that. And additionally, AdLoad can provide comprehensive and intelligent reporting, giving you accurate impression counts and exposure to analyze your marketing strategy for the long term. Just go to adloadtechnologies.com that's A-D-L-O-A-D technologies adloadtechnologies.com for more information. Alright, let's get to Crowd Ultra's Q&A. Just go to crowdultra.com sign up, takes a minute, and maybe I will answer your question right here on my podcast. Alright, let's get to some questions. Jay 
wants to know which Duke player do you think had the best NBA career? Wow, that's a great question. You know, Duke has this kind of, uh, I guess, dark cloud when people talk about all the great players that have played to Duke, and then a lot of them don't necessarily materialize into great pros. That, that, you know, that is a fabulous question. Grant Hill uh, comes to mind. You know, a guy that's uh, just had injuries, of course, hinder his career somewhat. But, boy, that, that you know, that that's a great question, Jay. That, that it really is a, a really, really good question. And, again, you know, when you talk about best NBA career or you're talking about numbers, stats, or you're talking about, you know, how many championships or you're talking about longevity – uh, but it is definitely a very good question. Dylan wants to know, is uh, Jake DeGrom the best pitcher? Jacob DeGrom the best pitcher in uh, the league? He's one of them. I, I don't know if you can just say this guy's the best pitcher in baseball. That guy's the best pitcher. I mean, he's in the conversation. I don't think you can have that conversation without mention uh, DeGrom's name. Rich wants to know, is the $25,000 fine worth Resting players like the Spurs did. Yeah, it's worth it if you want to keep on turning fans off, right? And I'm being very cynical here. If you want to keep having people turn their TVs off, uh, if you want to ruin, uh, ruin's too strong of a word. If you want to tarnish the integrity of the league, yeah, keep resting players. Twenty-five grand for an NBA team is pocket change. I know it's just awful to me that these teams don't see the damage that they're doing to their sport. It's just unbelievable to me. Sean wants to know, do you think the Suns could win a title? I don't. I don't think they're that good. I also am not a fan of Chris Paul in the postseason. Uh, He never gets the job done. So I will say no. I don't see them winning a title. Sam wants to know, how do you like the idea of MJ representing Kobe's Hall of Fame induction? I think it's great. Uh, I'm a big fan of that. I can't imagine uh, anyone other than, and again, Maybe Shaq, but I mean, Kobe and Michael, if you watch The Last Dance and their interaction, and they had some great scenes in there uh, regarding Kobe and Michael Jordan. So to me, yeah, it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. Josh wants to know, has your view on certain players changed once they share their political opinions? No. Why would they change? Why would my opinions change? We live in the United States of America. You're free to voice your political opinions, aspirations, favorites. The problem in our country is that if you voice your opinion, like Jack Nicholas did leading up to the election, a guy that's 80, guy that has done incredible work in all of his uh, communities, raised millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars for charities, is a class act across the board, comes out and endorses then-President Trump and gets killed for it. That's the problem I have. That's the problem I have. But no, I I don't care what political affiliation someone has. That goes for my friends, my family members. It makes no difference to me. We live in America. I mean, I don't know why so many people get turned off by that. And why it, it can be so contentious and end friendships. And it's just, it's foreign to me. It really is foreign to me. I do not understand that. Stacy says, hey, Grant, 
Would you be interested in announcing on the radio instead of TV? Yes, my first love is radio play-by-play. I would love to do radio play-by-play. I would love to do hockey on radio. I would probably be, if you gave me my wish list, that would be number one. uh, And basketball would be number two. But yeah, absolutely. I would do it uh, in a heartbeat. All right, let's move on. Uh, Kyle wants to know, what do you think about Trevor Lawrence's comments in Sports Illustrated? I don't really pay attention to all of this nonsense when somebody speaks like Trevor Lawrence did. The reality is he has a chance to be a great quarterback. And, you know, you can take an interview and you can dice it up and cut it any way you want uh, to change the narrative, so to speak. I just pay attention to what goes on on the football field. Duncan says, why have the Heat been so bad? You know, they won on Sunday on a last-second shot by Bam Adebayo. And as I'm recording this, they have not yet played Houston, but I assume they're going to win. That would put them at two games over uh, 500. Been very uh, very puzzling. Now, they should be better than two games over 500. Very puzzling uh, indeed. Chris wants to know, have you seen the security footage of the Aaron Donald scuffle? I did. And as I said last week on Q&A right here on Crowd Ultra, I said we had to wait and see until more information came out. And now we know the truth. That's why you have, you have to be very careful. You do not jump to conclusions. Tony wants to know, do you think the Jets could take someone else besides Zach Wilson? I don't see it. Could they? Yeah, I guess they could get up to the last minute and change their mind although we assume that's who they're taking when I say change their mind, but it seems uh, unlikely. It seems unlikely. Brad wants to know, why don't you see more batters exploit the shift? Because I think that teams are so dead set on hitting the ball out of the yard, they don't want to move you know, a runner 90 feet, and I'm, I'm with you. I do not understand it. I do not understand it. Andrew wants to know, has the NHL ruined their season with how they handled COVID? No. They haven't ruined their season. That's number one. Number two, if the season is ruined, it's COVID ruining the NHL season. It's not the NHL ruining their own season. You know, when you have travel parties of 40 and 50 people, okay, and they're they're traveling and they're staying in hotels and they're, I mean, you are going to have, especially when you're dealing with different countries, okay, you are going to have a potential problem. And we know what's going on in Vancouver with the Canucks. You can't blame that on the NHL. That's not fair. I mean, again, it's it's a very uh, infectious virus. How can you blame that on the NHL? What are they supposed to do? Seriously, what are you supposed to do? Uh, Ernie wants to know, do you ever watch drafts? Um, yes, I only watched NBA drafts until, you know, again, it was my job, but the lottery picks. And then in the NFL, you know, the Giants are picking at number 11. Once the Giants pick is at 11, I'll turn it off. I'll have very little interest. Here's the reality. And I'll make this general statement. 99% of us, okay, couldn't tell you a damn thing about players that are drafted in the middle to end of the first round, second round, third round, fourth round, fifth round. Are you going to really tell me, you know, the Jacksonville Jaguars with the 208th pick, pick, you know, John Smith out of North Carolina A&T, 
All right? I mean, stop it already. You don't know anything about that individual. So, no, I don't watch a lot of the drafts. Aaron wants to know, will Dwayne Wade owning part of the Jazz impact the team in any way? No, it will not. Has Michael Jordan, has his presence impacted Charlotte in a positive way in that franchise? No. No, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to matter at all. Hey, thank you very much for the questions on Crowd Ultra. Just go to CrowdUltra.com, sign up, and maybe I'll just answer your question on my next podcast. It's time for Rant. 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 Hey, today's rant is brought to you by Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Hey, did you know that one guy every hour, every day, is diagnosed with testicular cancer. So this is a reminder to all of the men listening to check yourself before you wreck yourself. And Manscaped, in addition to providing the right tools and solutions for safe and easy manscaping, they've partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to spread awareness for men's health and early cancer detection. Hey, folks, make sure you give yourself an examination at least once a month. If you feel any lumps or swelling, Make sure you give your doctor a call. And of course, in addition to checking yourself regularly, you want to make sure that your sack is looking fresh and clean with the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0. You'll find products and liquid formulations that have been developed to turn your bathroom into a salon for your balls. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. Dot com, your balls will thank you. Well, here we are, and it is the third week of April, and the New York Yankees have the worst record in the American League at five up and ten down, and the second worst record in Major League Baseball. And yet they've got an open checkbook, and every year they have an open checkbook, and every year they're able to go out and give ridiculous sums of money to players And here we are in 2021, and they have not won a world championship since 2009. And my question is this. How the hell does Brian Cashman still have a job as the general manager of the New York Yankees? I mean, that guy has done an absolutely awful job. And I'm tired of people defending cash, really. The guy has had uh, the money to spend. He's had all the resources, and the Yankees haven't done squat since 2009, all right? And when I mean squat, in New York, if you're a Yankee fan, you know, it's about winning championships, all right? It's about rings. It's not about getting to the playoffs and failing. It's about winning championships. How does Brian Cashman still have a job? And Aaron Boone, I mean, does Aaron Boone look lost out there? And I mean, and and how about John Carlos Stanton? That guy couldn't hit a freaking beach ball thrown underhand. I am so tired of seeing Stanton stand up at the plate and not take the damn bat off his shoulder, watch strike one, watch strike two, and then swing and miss strike three. I mean, with Stanton, it's very simple. You either hit the ball over the fence, which he hasn't been doing, or you strike out, which he does on a regular basis. Same thing goes for Judge. 
I mean, the Yankees are an absolutely awful team right now. Yeah, I know it's April, and I know they're one of these teams that are capable of going on a streak, but this is a freaking embarrassment. Absolutely embarrassing. And Brian Cashman, thank God for Cash that George Steinbrenner passed away years ago. Because if George Steinbrenner still owned the Yankees, Brian Cashman would have been fired five times by now. This is awful. Terrible. I mean, I I can't even watch the damn thing. I really can't. Give me five minutes of Yankee baseball. Click. I'm turning the damn thing off. It's awful. Terrible. And that's my rant for today. Hey, folks, again, thank you so much for checking out today's podcast. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Eric Musselman. And don't forget to check out my video rants over on YouTube as well. Hey, make it a great day. And as always, thank you for listening to If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier.